Good morning. Wow, what a worship time, huh? I want to thank all our musicians up here, singers and musicians, instrumentalists, just leading us in worship. It's amazing. I wonder how many songs have been written to praise the Lord over the years. Many, many, many. Let's pray before we look into God's word. Father, we thank you for just the fact that we can gather and worship and we don't have to fear, at least at this time. We pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, who are attacked for worshiping you. We pray your safety over them. We pray your help and strength. We thank you for their bravery. We pray, Lord, that you would bless them and encourage them and uh, even take away, free them from prison, give them back to their families, Lord, and take away the threats, we pray. And Father, now we pray that we can look into your word and learn from your word and just um, put it into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, these last few weeks, we've been looking into Jesus' time with his disciples after his resurrection. And it has kind of occurred to me as I've been reading through the Gospels at this point, that there was probably a difficult time for the disciples, even though it was so, they rejoiced so much over the Lord had risen. But as I read the accounts, it seems like Jesus' time with his disciples changed so dramatically, so drastically. You know, before his death and resurrection, they were together most of the time. They saw him do so many things, and they interacted with so many people, and he would explain many things to them along the way. They would learn as they went, and they watched him do what he did, and he explained to them what it meant, they witnessed his miracles. They saw him pray. They saw how he trusted God for everything. They were sent out by him and then came back and reported to him and then he taught them, you know, further. But then after Jesus' resurrection, when it was nearing the time for them, you know, to, so to speak, take over, you know, take on that ministry, it seems his time with them was basically random. You know, he would appear, and then all of a sudden he was gone. Then it seems they wouldn't know the next time they would see him. And we know that shortly after his death and resurrection, they locked themselves into a room for fear that the uh, Jewish leaders would come after them. So it seems that the time following Jesus' resurrection was <clears throat> more a time of uncertainty. It was a time that Jesus was going to soon hand the ministry over to them, and he told them that he would send the Holy Spirit, which is fantastic, you know, the third person of the Trinity, but what did that mean especially? Now, We've seen that when Jesus appeared to them, he would come into them and say, peace be with you. 
But you know, there were others hunting for them, trying to kill them. So how do you sort that out? You know, when people are trying to kill you and Jesus says, peace be with you. What does that mean? And then, of course, they had just seen Jesus being crucified by these same people. But you know, the last chapter of the Gospel of John gives us a lot of answers. It shows us one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to his disciples. The other Gospel shows others. But what happens here isn't something a person would probably expect or predict. You know, with Jesus coming to, you know, be with his disciples. But it turns out to be very impacting for his disciples. And then quite a teaching incident, even for us as a church. You know, each individual gospel account gives us important information for the church. And John chapter 1, 21, gives us its own valuable input. So I want to invite you to follow along as we look at John chapter 21, the first part of it, verses 1 through 14. Now this is after he has appeared to them in that locked room two times. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, I mean James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. They could not get it into the boat. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, in the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus come to the disciples and give them proof that he was indeed risen from the dead. It was him. 
But now we have this almost uh, strange account, this unexpected encounter with Jesus. And he's fixing breakfast for these disciples who had fished all night. And as we have been tracing through the death, burial, and now post-resurrection, we haven't really seen any detailed strategical plans for the disciples as they are now becoming going to become the foundation of the church that would last for thousands of years. So it sort of seems to me that the disciples could be experiencing kind of a, a mindset of, you know, a limbo. Like, what? Where do we do? Where do we go? So Jesus asks them <clears throat> if they had caught anything, and they say no. So he tells them to throw the net out on the right side of the boat. And wham! They couldn't even pull the net into the boat. Does that bring back any memories from another Bible passage? You know, it just so happens that sort of incident happened toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is teaching the people by teaching the people. He's by the Sea of Galilee, and the crowds are coming, and they keep coming, and he gets kind of starting to get pushed back towards the water just because of the crowds. And so he looks over, he sees these two boats, he climbs into one, which happens to be Simon Peter's. This is at the very beginning, you know, of Jesus' public ministry. And he's in this boat, and he's, he gives us some room back from the crowd. He pushes off a little bit from the shore, and then he continues teaching. And when he's finished, he tells Simon to put out into deeper water and let out the nets. And Simon says what he said this time. We've been fishing all night here in the same place, and we haven't caught anything. And so, but then Simon says, well, but since you say, I'll do it. And they catch so many fish that their nets begin to break. They call the other boat over to help gather the fish, and it almost sinks both boats. Simon falls, it says, at Jesus' knees, and tells Jesus to go away. He says, I'm a sinful man. I can't be near you. And everyone there couldn't believe what had just happened. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for men. So they left everything behind and followed Jesus. Okay, that was back at the beginning. That's when they were first meeting Jesus. Now here they are after the resurrection, three years later, and things seem so different now. You know, Jesus just sort of shows up, unannounced, unexpected. For three years they had spent days in and days out with Jesus. They lived life with him. They traveled with him. They ate meals together. They saw him handle so many different circumstances. And he was teaching them continually, you know, life lessons right then and there. And they witnessed so many miracles. You know, he just built their faith so strong in him. Now, after the resurrection, he shows up from time to time. They don't know when he's coming. 
or how long he'll stay, are they really ready to take on this ministry that Jesus is going to hand over to them? If I would have been one of the disciples, I would have wanted a list, I would have wanted directions, you know, with a compass on it and everything. How will they be able to deal with Jesus' enemies when he is no longer with them physically? I mean, was three years really enough for what he expects of them? Well, you know, I think that's one reason why Jesus performed this particular miracle, this humongous catch of fish. I believe it did several things. One thing is it pointed them back to the first time it happened. <clears throat> but I think it also showed his disciples, reminded them that he has the power to supply all their needs out of nothing, out of an empty lake, so to speak. He can give them fish that, that swamps two boats or they have to drag to shore. And as they head out with the gospel message of salvation, they know from experience that Jesus can supply every need and he can supply it abundantly. It doesn't mean that he will always supply it abundantly because they will face hard times. You know, Paul said, I've had times of plenty and I've had times of lack. But even in those times when, it, when it's times of lack, we know that Jesus can give us what we need. And he is still in control. And he has not forgotten them or us. And then, of course, I believe that this miracle brings them back to that first one, like I said. And it could bring, as, as they watch it happen again, it brings their minds and hearts to the same feeling that they had that first time when they were so overwhelmed with his presence and, his, and so amazed at what he could do and what things were like when he was with them. And when Peter asked Jesus to leave that first time because he was not worthy to be in his presence, and this miracle, you know, with that feeling that Peter had, and this miracle was so physical, you know. I mean, you know, they had to drag that net to the shore. It took so much energy and strength. And the fish was so large. It says 153 large fish. And yet the net did not tear. And you know, after every fishing trip, they'd go mend nets, right? And then I wonder about Jesus asking them to add some of their fish to the breakfast. Now, I don't want to get too much into this, you know, go beyond what the, the text is saying. But I just kind of wonder, you know, Jesus is there fixing that breakfast. He knows the men are out there. He knows where to go to meet where they are. And he's, he's got this breakfast cooking already. <clears throat> but he has them add some of what they um, caught. Of course, he's the one that had them catch it. He's the one that made them catch it, that enabled them to do that. And he asks them to put in some of their fish. 
And I'm thinking, you know, oftentimes, you know, when God gives us something to do, we are investing human effort. And when he helps us, it's along with our human effort. Now, God, you know, those fish just came, boom. No human effort there, right? But they did have to drag the fish to the shore, right? And so, oftentimes, when we're praying for God's help, you know, we're sharing the gospel with someone, we're helping someone in a time of need. You know, Jesus supplied the fish where there were no fish, but the disciples dragged the net. All in all, I believe this miracle was very strategic and did so much to help the disciples by preparing their minds and their attitudes for their approaching assignments. So on the outward, <clears throat> on the outset, it seems like, well, when's, how is Jesus preparing them? You know, when he sends them out, what are they going to know what to do? But he's teaching them all along, isn't he? And isn't that how he teaches us too? He teaches us through circumstances. And there's maybe circumstances that we don't like and don't want to be there, and he's teaching us through them. He does work the same way with us, doesn't he? And he helps us in ways where we have to involve our own effort, maybe most of the time. You know, it seems like that we may think something is more likely from God if we have nothing to do with it. And of course, there are those times, aren't there? We're praying for something, and then something just wild happens that just wasn't in the, it wasn't in the script. But I also think it can be a work of God even when we are putting forth a lot of effort. I think that God takes us through training programs. I think God uses also processes and events, help from others, natural talents that we have, and they can be works of God. And then there are all those times when it is all God, but we're also continually praying, aren't we? And God can be in it whether it takes a lot of human effort or whether it happens while we're sleeping. It can be God all the way through. And he is there all the way through. But we need to be in prayer, don't we? We need to be continually you know, in contact with God through prayer. And now, <clears throat> moving on, Jesus changes the scene pretty drastically. Now he takes Peter aside. And so let's look at the rest of the chapter, 15 through 23, or most of the rest of the chapter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And there's difference of opinion over when he, what he means by more than these. I think as we read through it, we'll see that he's saying, do you love me more than all the other people love me? I mean, are you kind of like first in line? Because he will pick Peter to be the head of the disciples. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Now we're talking about the writer of the gospel, John the Apostle. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to, put you, to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die, meaning he would be there when Christ came back. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So Jesus, <clears throat> boy, he really puts it on Peter, doesn't he? Peter, do you love me more than these? Some people think he might be talking about more than the fish. <laughs> more than the fishing job, you know. Uh, more than you love these others. But like I said, I think he means, do you have, you know, the highest love for me? Are you committing yourself to me completely? Are you ready to take the lead with all these men? Is your love for me stronger than anyone else could claim? Are you totally committed to me? I think Jesus is asking Peter if he's ready to commit himself to be the lead apostle. And I think it has a lot to do with Peter's willingness to suffer for Christ. I really think that when he's asking Peter, how dedicated are you to me? He's really talking about how much are you willing to suffer for me? Do you truly love me? Are you ready to back it up with your actions? Are you willing to sacrifice everything for my cause? And you know, Peter's taken back by Jesus asking him three different times, right? Or three times. I think three times just kind of drives it deeper each time. But I also agree with those who say that Jesus says it three times to counteract Peter's three denials. Kind of like they set each other off. And then we see that Jesus' response each time is, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. So we see that Peter's paramount responsibility is to shepherd the flock, isn't it? It's to care for people, strengthen the faith of followers of Christ. Take care of those under your care. Help them. Warn them, 
teach them, protect them from wolves. And then Peter asks John, uh, about John. He asks Jesus about John. Maybe Peter was worried that he would be responsible for everything. Maybe he was feeling a bit pressured that all the work would fall on his shoulders alone. And, you know, it is sort of interesting that Jesus didn't say to this when Peter says, well, what about this guy? He didn't say, well, Peter, I'll split the work up so you won't be responsible for everything. And he also didn't say, don't worry, you won't be the only one dying for my cause. Because in the other statement he made to Peter was, it meant he was going to be dying for his cause. Many others will also give their lives. Now that would have been true, right? He could have said those things, and he would have been speaking the truth, speaking reality. But he doesn't. He just says to Peter... Don't concern yourself with what I give other people to do. You just follow me. What about this? Follow me. Well, how come he? Follow me. Everything is follow me. Just be concerned with what what I give you to do. And isn't that a good lesson for us also? I mean, human nature... We just always want to look to the other person when we're given something to do. And it isn't that we can't ever speak into someone else's life. It's just like, you know, we are responsible for others, for each other. But it's that mainly we have to focus on our own responsibilities and especially not get worried if we are called to do more or something more difficult or if we have some, if we have less than someone else. We can't be bothered with petty comparisons, what we think is fair and not fair. And it is pettiness, but we all want to do it. And so we're told here to mainly focus on what God has called us to do as his servant and not think about what everybody else, if somebody else has it better, easier, You just follow me. You know, um, I see this happening so often. People get jealous of others when they get more praise. This can enter into our lives in so many ways. And when people get more preference or people get better rewards or something like that, and it's going to happen... And, and sometimes it isn't fair at all. But we just think, just do what I tell you to do. Just follow me. Follow me. It says that the rumor spread that John wouldn't die before Christ's return. But then he says, well, but Jesus didn't say that. He just said, if I decide to keep him alive until my return, that's not your concern. You follow me. And that is a strong lesson for us too. Don't get caught up into what other people have, 
how others are rewarded. You know, some people just are just have so much more from their birth, their situation, their circumstances, but we can't get it, get caught up in that. We want to be careful not to be falling into the comparison trap. And Satan, that's where Satan wants to take us. He says, is that fair? After all you've done? And we can't measure ourselves after what others receive. In all those scenarios, Jesus says, you follow me. Because there will always be someone else who seems to have it better than us. And it may or may not be true. It may be someone who doesn't deserve better or doesn't work as hard or isn't as dedicated. And they seem to receive all the benefits, all the praise. Or they are more celebrated. I remember watching one <clears throat> fallen TV evangelist. You know, he had gotten caught and he was explaining, he was, he was repenting and he was talking about how he fell into that trap. And he saw another TV evangelist that was getting more praise, more money. And they were just fighting each other over just totally worldly things. They'd lost, you know, they'd lost what got them there. They'd lost that priority of putting Christ first. <clears throat> but we must follow him. We can't get up, caught up in earthly praise or popularity or prominence, earthly riches, because God will make all things right in the end. And that's where it really counts. And we will be, we will be abundantly rewarded for our faithfulness and our hard attitudes. And Jesus said to Peter, hey, if I decide he doesn't have to die, that's not your concern. It's not our business. That means we don't question God on why so-and-so gets off so easily. Because we will be amply rewarded for following him. So let's now read our last two verses. John says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. <clears throat> so, I mean, we have some amazing things in the Word of God, but it's just a little bit of what God has done, God is doing. Uh, we just can't even, you know, get near the full amount, to know the full amount. So... That means there are riches untold waiting for us. We won't get cheated. We can't outserve what God is going to give us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And even though there is so much beyond your word that is true of what you will do and how you will reward and how much your love is, we thank you that we have this much. 
and that you've given it to us and you've preserved it over the millennia when people were trying to destroy it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take your word, drive it into our hearts, help us to meditate upon it, think about it, live by it, rejoice in it, and encourage one another and, and follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.